everybody. Welcome. Good morning. Uh, I got a lot of comments about uh, my haircut, and the truth is this. I totally forgot to put spiky gel in my hair this morning. So I got a haircut, so it's super short, so now I'm feeling a little bit awkward, but that's all right. Um, okay, I'm getting texted as I start, so thanks, yo-yo. Appreciate it. <laughs> Okay, uh, I got a lot to cover today. I'm going to read you a little bit out of The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Anybody read that book? Yes? Yes? Okay, kind of random. Um, if you, the notes don't have it because I kind of thought of this title as I was driving here. Um, and we send the notes before that happens. So uh, the title, if you want to scribble it down on your, on your skillet, is called Theatrical Surrender. Theatrical surrender. So, uh, let's get started. We're going to fly through some of this. I got a, I got that a little bit out of that book to read to you. I got, I got a, um, a newspaper article from the USA Today that I want to read. Um, but let's pray first. Heavenly Father, love you. Jesus, we praise you. Majesty, your grace has found us. Just. Just as I am, God. Empty-handed, but alive in your hand. And so, God, our prayer today, Jesus, is that we would come alive in your hand. That you would ignite the fire again, God. That you would burn brightly inside of us so that we could be a light into this dark world. We live for you, God. In Jesus' name. All right, this is the fifth and final Sunday of the month, and therefore the last Sunday on the Missions Emphasis Month. And so, how many, how many people, raise your hand, have been here for f the last, counting today, five straight Sundays? Awesome. Those are people who had nothing to do with their spring break. So, um, okay, last week then, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to run through... Uh, what we did last week, we went through um, Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is where Jesus sends out the 72 disciples. And he sends them out into villages. And then remember what we did. We broke up into our tables. And one, two of you guys were supposed to be the disciples. And, uh, and you were supposed to pretend like you were in a village and you'd just eaten. And you had invited these disciples into your house. And then you were, and then you were um, saying, okay, what are you doing here in my village? And the disciples were supposed to say, the kingdom of God is near. Thank you very much. And so the, the disciples say, the kingdom of God is near. And we pontificated about how that, how that discussion uh, continued. And then we talked about kind of how it was awkward amongst your tables because some of you guys got into some theological discussions. Some of you guys got into the book of Revelation like that. Um, some of you guys were talking about worshiping God and some, some timelines get, got a little messed up. But then we said, okay, what do you think those disciples actually did when the patriarch of that Jewish family that they were invited into, who they had just shared a meal with, said, what do you mean? The kingdom of God is near? What do you mean? And we said, well... Let's see what would come out of them if they didn't know. And then we looked back in the whole, in the whole uh, book of Luke and we, and we just ran through kind of the, 
the titles of those paragraphs and the titles of those chapters and we said, listen, look at what they've been a part of. And they've been a part of healings and, and teachings. And, um, and remember, the widow's son had been raised back from the dead. And so they shared all those stories. So it made sense that when Jesus actually went to those towns, that many brought their sick to Jesus and he healed them because they had been told stories about how he healed the sick. So that just kind of lays a context of where we're going. But if you have your Bible... Flip to Matthew sixteen twenty four. We're going to read twenty four and twenty five. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. So let's fly through um, kind of a brief history of missions. We're going to come back to that verse at the very end. So you can leave your Bible open there or um, keep your thumb there when we go someplace else. But a brief history of missions. Um, Let's go all the way back to Genesis so that we can lay the groundwork here. We're going to go to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7 says... Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to, called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid. And then if you skip ahead to verse 21 in that same chapter, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And so what happens there in, in, in the perfect world, in, in an absolute perfect garden, is that Adam and Eve sinned. They did the one thing that they were told not to do, and they ate of that fruit. And then all of a sudden their eyes were open. They became aware of, of, of who they were and what they were and of good and, and, and of evil. And then their response was to hide from God. But then they also sewed fig leaves together, right? So Jesus comes. God comes. He walks through the garden. He comes and he covers their sin. He covers their shame. But it takes a sacrifice, right? Because it says in verse 21 that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And so there we have the first actual death. So God came and most likely killed some, some sort of animal and clothed them with skin. Not skin like that's on your hand and on your arms, but skin, skin of an animal that he covered them with. And so then in 2 Corinthians, you don't have to, you don't have to flip through there. 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 says this, All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed us, committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so I think if you start in Genesis, it gives you a good picture of what God had to do as he started this process and realizing that he was going to have to reconcile himself to this fallen world. And then in 2 Corinthians, Paul tells us that we're given that message of reconciliation. And so 
we are then to look back through that. And in that context, it's our job then to cover over, cover over other people's sins. And we talked a little bit last week about how, how the term uh, evangelism has, has been given this awkward kind of word picture. That when you think of an evangelist, you think of somebody that's standing in downtown Berlin on a soapbox and he's screaming at people as they walk by and people are throwing things at him and he's like, the end of the world is near. And, and then the other guy that has like the sandwich board of uh, the, that Jesus is coming and all, all those weird things. And we're saying that's one out of 10 or maybe one out of 20. But what is evangelism to the rest of us? And I think evangelism to the rest of us is 2 Corinthians 5, that, that we've been given this message of reconciliation. We haven't been given a message of condemning the world. We've been given a message of, listen, you now understand your shame, and I want to help you cover that shame. But in that, I'm just a part of directing you to Jesus Christ. And so I think that puts us into the context of where we want to, where we want to go with with the history of missions and, the, and going to, obviously, the Great Commission. It's taken me a month, five whole Sundays, and I think this is the first time I'm reading that. But I just wanted to lay a foundation of who Jesus is and what we have to have inside of us before we just read this and go. But we're going to get into that. Matthew 28:18 Then Jesus came to them and said, "All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age." So Jesus speaks this in his last few moments with the disciples. He spent three and a half years with the disciples. He's lived life. They've seen him raise people from the dead. He, he's, they've seen him heal people. They've seen him really lay down him, his life in the context of washing their, of washing their feet and then, and then also laying down his life on the cross. And then he's raised from the dead. And these people, if you read one, one verse ahead of that, it says they worshipped him, but some doubted. And so, so people are still kind of wondering about this, but he gives them this commission and then they go. And then what happens? Well... Just reading through a list of what infers in the history of missions in the apostolic age. You guys know that Stephen was the first martyr and he was stoned basically about 34 AD. The years are a little bit off because of the Caesarean calendar. But then we have, then we have James, the son of Zeb- Zebedee, was beheaded in 44 AD. Philip, the apostle, was crucified in 54. Matthew was killed with one of those, with one of those it was an axe that you swing with both arms, Okay. So that was, that was how Matthew was killed. James the Just was beaten to death with a club after being crucified and stoned. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. Andrew, who was Peter's brother, was crucified. Mark was dragged in the streets until he died. Dragged through the streets. Peter was crucified. You guys know that. He was crucified upside down. The Apostle Paul was finally beheaded in Rome. Jude, crucified. Bartholomew, flayed alive and crucified. Thomas, killed with a spear. Luke, he was hung. Simon the Zealot, he was crucified in 74 AD. And most accounts have John, the disciple, 
said that he was cooked in boiling hot oil, but survived. And then lived until he finally died a natural death. So these are men that took the message of Jesus Christ and kind of sort of believed it. Right? Wrong. They believed it and it changed their life. It changed their death. It changed everything that they did. That's gruesome things that happened that if you really didn't believe it, you would recant at some point. Correct? Well, that opened up a whole other generation and then we leave the... We, we move into the era of those who didn't have any direct contact with Jesus. Okay? All of those, all of those men and, and that era are dying off. And so it becomes very crucial that the message of Jesus Christ is carried in the hearts and in the minds of brilliant men and women who realized the passion that the disciples had and, and they themselves wanted to carry it with them. So we get to Polycarp. You guys have probably heard of Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of the Apostle John. So now, as you move away from those who actually had conversations and meals with Jesus, it becomes very important to still have contact with those who had contact with Jesus. Does that make sense? So Polycarp is one of those who was... who His mentor was John. And so he becomes a leader in the church and he lives in Smyrna. It's one of the churches in Revelation. And at that point, Rome is putting pressure on Christians and they start, they start really per- persecuting them and putting them to death. And there's, and there's a lot of Christians that are, that are giving up their lives for the cause. And Polycarp is now old. He's 86 years old. And he, he hears word that Rome is coming after him. And they're going to put him on trial and they want him to recant because they wanted him to offer incense to Caesar. Okay? They wanted him to basically worship Caesar to a degree. And he catches word of that and so he moves to another house and he's there for a little bit. And then he finds out that that they found out where he was. So he moves to another house and very quickly he's in this house and he finds out, listen, they, they found out already that you were moved over here. And he says, listen... I'm not going to keep running. I'm not going to hide in a hole. And so he stays there. And sure enough, his captors come and, and they find out where he is and they demand that he comes out. And he comes out and he presents himself to them. And these, these people who were just hired to go arrest Polycarp, when he shows up downstairs in this house, the captors look at him and they realize this whole time we've been chasing an 86-year-old man. Imagine that. You know what Polycarp did? He demanded at that point that his captors be fed. He said, I want you to prepare a meal for them. And please, if you would, give me one hour to pray. And his captors are already feeling a little bit bad that they're hunting down this old man. And so they take a free meal and they sit there and Polycarp goes up into a room and he he prays. But he prays so emphatically and the people can hear him praying that he prays for two straight hours without ceasing. At that point, those men have have finished eating their meals and they're weeping and they're repenting that they're even a part of chasing down this man of God. But sure enough, they have to follow through with their orders and they bring him in. They bring him to to the leaders and the leaders 
say, listen, you need, you need to recant. Polycarp, just recant and we'll let you go. And he says, 80 and six years I've served my Savior and he's done me no harm. Why should I fail him now when he has never failed me? And he walks into an area where there's a, where there's a big crowd that's going to witness this event. And a, a voice from heaven sh- basically shouts out, Be strong and show yourself a man. He's questioned, continued. He's, he's already been thrown off of a chariot, dislocated his leg. I don't know if you've ever hung out with a man who's 86, but the dislocation of a leg would pretty much end his day. He's done at that point. But Polycarp, after getting thrown off of the chariot, hustles into where they want him to be because he's already had, he's already had a prophetic dream that he was going to be burned alive. Polycarp continues to profess Jesus Christ as his Savior and to deny worship to Caesar and to Rome. And eventually, they decide on the fact that they're going to burn him at the stake. And he quickly undresses and unlaces his sandals, which was rare because, because at that point, they honored men and women of God so much so that he would have never, ever untied his sandals. That people would have raced it says, to touch his flesh first. Some of that honor and respect, I think, that we've lost in the church, capital C. That the large percentage of us in this room don't have mentors. We don't have people that are decades older, older than us speaking into our lives. And so at the end of his life, where he's let others do this, now it's his turn to say, uh-uh. I'm going straight ahead. And he undresses and takes off his sandals and goes over to the stake where people are bringing scraps of wood. And the, and the ruckus crowd is building because they're waiting to see this happen. Jews are upset because Jews think that Christians have taken their religion and skewed it. And the Romans are maybe just bloodthirsty and power hungry. But he races to that and they get ready to to stake him with nails to this board. And he says, listen, don't nail me here because I can hold on. And he who holds my life can help me to hold on to this stake in the flames. And so they instead just tie him with rope, which would have burned. The gruesomeness is just the truth. And they light this fire, and the fire blazes. And then the witnesses write about this event, and you guys have heard this before, that, that surrounding Polycarp was this flame, was this, were the flames, but inside it was like a whirlwind that was keeping the flames away from him. They set, they set the whole thing on fire, and Polycarp did not burn. And they said there was such a sweet fragrance that went up. People are confused at this point. I wonder what the men who ate that meal at his house were thinking at that point. I wonder what the Jews started to believe. And they realized that this man wasn't going to die by fire. And so finally the leaders told one of the soldiers to go ahead and spear him. And when they speared him, so much blood came out that it put out the flames. 
and then out of fear that he would be worshipped, that Christians would forsake the worship of Jesus Christ and replace it for Polycarp, the leaders of Rome said, I want you to burn the body again. And they burned the body. And his friends were left to only collect the bones after the, after the fire had burned him completely. You move forward from that because that ushered in... Persecution always makes the church grow. But you move forward a long, long way. And I want to touch on the Moravian church. Moravian church were just a bunch of individuals just like us, young people, that gathered in Hernhut, Germany in, 1920, in 1727. They were a small kind of community in town and they, and they, had, they had separation. They, they, they had disgust for each other. They had these issues. But then all of a sudden, they started working through and walking into unity and the Holy Spirit fell upon them. And revival took place. And out of this, they, they, wrote a, they wrote a simple doctrine of unity. And their motto basically was, in, in essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. This group of people started a 24-hour prayer movement that lasted 100 years without breaking. This, if, if you really want to think about it, the Moravian church helped to define New Life Church because they were the first ones who really truly believed in the small group idea and in that in that in smaller groups there is community. They also were the ones who really started sending out missionaries to the Caribbean, to Greenland, to different places. They still exist today. Fast forward now into the 1900s and I talked about this one of the weeks. There's a man named Jim Elliot. His quote was wherever you are be all there. Live to the hilt every situation you determine to be the will of God. You guys know that Jim Elliot, he was born in 1927, but he only lived to 1956 because he decided to, after he graduated from Wheaton College, he decided to leave everything behind. People implored him to be a youth pastor in America, but, but he decided, no, you know what? The people of Ecuador need me. And he joined a missions agency down there. And then after, after a couple of years, he decided to, to focus on the Aka Indian tribe, an, an unreached tribe. They had never had any peaceful interactions with this tribe, and so they gave gifts. And they tried to reach out. And then one day, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and three others landed on the beach trying to make contact. They thought they had made peace. They were deceived, and they came... On that beach, they were raided, they were speared, they were killed, they were thrown into the river. One man's body was never found. Two weeks after that, there was an article written in Life magazine about Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, and their friends, and about their story, about giving their life to missions. That one story in Life magazine spurred, I would say, maybe the greatest charge in the history of missions. See, when Polycarp died, they wrote a letter. The Church of Smyrna wrote a letter that went out like one of Paul's epistles. And it for sure brought unction and desire to the people that were, that were Christians in that early first century church. And it changed lives and it spurred people on. But we didn't, they didn't have... They didn't have a way to disseminate information quickly. And so that letter went from church to church, 
to church very slowly. In 1956, we were still way behind what we are now in the information age, but, but you still had weekly magazines and newspapers and television. And so because of the sacrifice that Jim Elliott made, I think we're still riding the crest of the wave of missions that he laid his life down for. But now let's go all the way to today. This week there was an article in the USA Today. Let me just read it to you. The Southern Baptist Convention, which is launching a new national campaign to bring unbelievers to Jesus, is up against a major obstacle, motivating its own members to evangelize. But it may be the only effective way to reach people, according to a survey of 15,000 people by Lifeway Research, a Christian research firm. The survey found this. Only two ways most people said they were somewhat or very willing to receive information about Jesus. 63% would hear it in a personal conversation with a family member or with a friend or neighbor from the church. Quote, Baptists like to talk more about evangelism than to actually do it, says Lifeway director Ed Stetzer. Personal evangelizing is, quote, a great concept that's hard for people to get motivated to do, end quote. Thirteen other ways to reach out, including print advertising, notes on the door, billboards, radio, television, and high-tech online efforts were clearly rebuffed, according to the research released this week. The convention's North American Missions Board requested the survey to give direction to its new, quote, GPS campaign. So the, so the Southern Baptist Convention is, is going to launch a campaign called GPS which is adapting the global positioning system term for, quote, God's plan for sharing, which it will launch in 2010. Brilliant, people. It's a challenge, says Brandon Pickett, spokesman for the Board of Southern Baptists. He sees as many reasons for shying away from, evangelism, from evangelizing as there are individuals. But overall, many people will fear they will be rejected or ignored or won't have a ready answer for questions or opposition. So... The board and pastors are going to give people the support in apologetics, defense of the faith, doctrine and theology so they feel more confident, he says. Let's give them more of that stuff. How about we give them Jesus, right? People have lost that mission impulse that Christians are supposed to have. They get discouraged, too, by the numbers of people who are resistant to the message, Stetzer says. Still, Stetzer found a positive spin to the survey findings. He says believers should realize that, quote, the unbelievers next door still need a simple personal invitation to talk, to be in community, and to church. So we have, we have some research here. It's going, to be up, it's going to be up on the screen. I know it's hard to see um, the graph that these people put together. They're not even the greatest. So up here should be circles coming potentially. Okay. This, this chart from their findings, effectiveness of an invitation to church from one of the following types of churches. It basically says that people are somewhat receptive to get an invitation from a non-denominational church, but all these other denominational churches, they're, they're 15%, 11%, 7%, 8%, 6%, and 2% from the Mormons. So the Mormons are evangelizing like crazy. They out-evangelize us in... In the past two weeks, there's been, there's been two sets of Mormons that have knocked on my door, okay, at my house. But it says that 
20% will, will have, it'll be more effective a little bit. That's, that's a little bit rough, very kind of, kind of bad graph. But I'm basically laying the groundwork that we go to a non-denominational church and therefore we have the advantage. If we give an invitation to a non-denominational church, it's less threatening than to a Mormon church or to a denominational church. Okay, next slide. Top five ways people are most willing to receive information about a local congregation. We just read about this. The only two that are, are sort of effective on this, and this is the top five. There's, a, there's 18 other ways that don't work, meaning leaving a note on the door. Okay? The, the first one, the top one, is personal conversation with a family member. And the second, personal conversation with a friend or a neighbor who goes to that church. Everything else is just a little bit difficult to follow. The last one, top five times you have been more open to consider matters of faith. The first one is obviously during the, Christ, the Christmas holiday, and the second one is coming up on us during the Easter holiday season. The third most likely is after a major national crisis such as 9-11, after a national disaster, or after the birth of a baby. Okay, so this puts in your mind... The, the, the times that people are most receptive to hearing the message of reconciliation that you have inside of you. That message that all of us have been commissioned to give. See, I think Jim Elliott did us a great service. He laid down his life And he sent many, many, many young people to the field. And like I said, we're still riding the crest of that wave. But I think what we have and why the room gets so quiet when we talk about somebody like Polycarp or Jim Elliott is because we have this this love affair with martyrdom in Christianity. You You can see it in many different aspects. Because... Because we have romanticized missions. We've taken, we've, we've taken missions, the commission that we've been given of reconciling the world to Christ, and now we've made it this heroic event. This thing that we want to lay our lives down. This thing that we write journals because we hope that if something ever happened to us, somebody would find our journals and read it and publish it. I want to read to you The Adventures of Tom Sawyer by Mark Twain. This is out of chapter 14. Okay. Tom and Huck and Joe have run away from their their town, from their families. Huck doesn't really have a family, you guys know. They decided to become pirates. They've decided to leave it all behind. You know, they're rabble rousers. Tom Sawyer and Huckleberry Finn. Some of you guys connect with them. Um, they, they like to stir up trouble. They're always getting their hands swatted. They're just always causing trouble. And they say, all right, you know what? We're just going to leave this behind and we're going to go become pirates. And they get their little knapsack of, of toys and and goodies and they and they go out and they they get this raft they build this raft and they go down 
the Mississippi River and they find this island in the middle of the river and they decide they're going to conquer this island they're going to set up camp they're going to start a fire and they're going to just become pirates out there so they've been doing that for a little bit and there's kind of a a a lull in the story here and I'll read for some time now the boys had been duly conscious of a peculiar sound in the distance, just as one sometimes is of the ticking of a clock, which he takes no distant note of. But now this mysterious sound became more pronounced. The boys started, glanced at each other, and then each assumed a listening attitude. There was a long silence, profound and unbroken. Then a deep, sullen boom came floating down out of the distance. What is it? exclaimed Joe under his breath. I wonder, said Tom with a whisper. Taint thunder, said Huckleberry in an awed tone, because thunder. Hark, said Tom. Listen, don't talk. They waited a time that seemed an age, and then the same muffled boom troubled the solemn hush. Let's go see. They sprang to their feet and hurried to the shore toward the town. They parted the bushes on the bank and peered out over the water. The little steam ferry boat was about a mile below the village, drifting with the current. Her broad deck seemed crowded with people. There were a great many skiffs rowing about or floating with the stream in the neighborhood of the ferry boat. But the boys could not determine what the men in them were doing. Presently, a great jet of white smoke burst from the ferry's boat side, and as it expanded and rose in a lazy cloud, the same dull throb of sound was borne to the listeners again. I know, exclaimed Tom. Somebody's drowned. That's it, said Huck. They done that last summer when Bill Turner got drowned. They shoot a cannon over the water, and that makes him come up to the top. By jings, I wish I was over there now, said Joe. I do too, said Huck. I'd give heaps to know who it is. The boys still listened and watched. Presently, a revealing thought flashed through Tom's mind, and he exclaimed, Boys, I know who's drowned. It's us. They felt like heroes in an instant. Here was a gorgeous triumph. They were missed. They were mourned. Hearts were breaking on their account. Tears were being shed. Accusing memories of unkindnesses to these poor lost lads were rising up. And availing regrets and remorse were being indulged. And best of all, the departed were the talk of the whole town. And the envy of all the boys, as far as this dazzling notoriety was concerned, this was fine. It was worthwhile to be a pirate after all. The days of the Jim Elliott missionary are gone. The days of the church gallivanting around the world, pretending to lay their lives down, it's disappeared. The number of unreached people groups and unengaged people groups has fallen drastically. And in this information age, it's hard to hide anything from anyone. See what the romanticism of martyrdom has done is it's put a heroic emphasis on missions that I don't think, speaking as a missions pastor, deserves to be there. 1 Thessalonians 4.11 says this, Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, 
to mind your own business and to work with your hands just as we told you. See, for them to be a pirate was this dream come true. And then, then for the whole town to really go out searching for them after they had found a raft that had come up on shore a couple towns further down and no sign of them, they thought these three boys had drowned. And I think sometimes we get this commission and we read, we read the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and we think that we're supposed to lay our lives down. We're supposed to go be this great person who journaled our whole life and was this hidden, hidden jewel until we were burned in the fire. And now all of a sudden they're going to write books about us. Oh, to be a martyr. Oh, to live your life with a, such a great sense of purpose and high calling. I think you see the, the issue of martyrdom in the poverty mentality that swept over modern Christianity. Think that, think that being a Christian means that you can't have this, or you can't do this, or you can't be a part of this, or you can't run your own business, or, or you, should, you should have all this and give it, give it all away. There's, there's a romanticism about about living your life and being a, a supported missionary. About going to the nations and I'm gone this week and I'm gone that week and I'm going over here and, and yeah, I was just last week I was over here and oh yeah, my passport just dropped to the ground and while you pick it up, you thumb through and you see all the stamps that are in my passport and it's this ooh and ah mentality about what missionaries are supposed to be. How far we've gone. How many countries we've been to, how poor we've been, and how small of bags we've actually packed to get there. But I think that article this week tells us that really those people that we're supposed to reconcile to Jesus Christ are those who are closest to us. That we need to that we need to set aside that that issue of, well, when, I, when I'm 50, I'll write a book and I'll talk about my great adventures and people will really know that I've been a pirate. But all the while, we have people that we see go in and out of their garage, walking their dogs, interacting with on the campuses that we attend school with, and we say nothing to them. Because we would, if we, were, if we were overseas, if we were in another hemisphere, we would say something, we would do a drama in front of those people. Why? Because, because we're detached. We're living in this, in this dream come true reality. But we won't say it to their face. See, here's my thought. And I'm not discounting short-term missions. I've given my life to it because I believe in it. But I think, I think there's truth in both aspects, and we better get it right. Matthew, Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of what? Of individuals? Of neighbors? Of kids running around on, on the streets of a third-world country? No. He said, go and make disciples of of all nations. Okay, follow me through this. We're supposed to go and make disciples of all nations. If we hold on to a poverty mentality or a romanticized view of what missions is, and then we're not going to grow up and own our own companies. We're not going to grow up and own our own businesses. We're not going to grow up and be men and women. 
who change this nation and therefore change other nations because we're supposed to disciple nations. That means that we're supposed to have inside of us an urge that has not a when I die people will read books about me mentality. But in 60 years I'm going to get myself to this point. Maybe some of you guys are supposed to not fool around at school and not, and not spend your time going to see movies and, and watch TV. But some of you guys are supposed to get your noses in the books so that you can one day sit on the Supreme Court. Because my 60-year plan better not, better not include some of you guys living the American dream of a white, of, uh, of a white picket fence and 2.5 kids living, living a nice, quiet life. My, my 60-year plan has to turn you guys into lawyers and doctors and businessmen and businesswomen and educators. Because the church has to infect society on all levels. Education, social justice... All the way to the Supreme Court and then to businesses that hold so much influence in their community that they can go to one of those one of those community meetings. And when they stand up, they don't see you as a normal average American. They see you as somebody who holds influence in their town. And you might still go on missions and you might still get stamps in your passport. But you've given up. You've given up the thought that one day I'm going to be a Jim Elliott. That I'm going to go and I'm going to live and I'm going to journal and then it's just going to cut off and it's going to be great. People are going to read books about me. No way. We have to believe that we're going to be 86 years old affecting nations, people. Affecting nations. Discipling nations. And, and we've too long been wasting our time discipling one or two people. Meeting with people at Starbucks and feeling like, feeling, feeling like we're doing what we're called to do. Reconciling the world to Christ. What's your 60-year plan? What is it? Because it better be outside of your reach. If your 60-year plan is, is to become a mom or a dad, that's totally fine if inside of that plan... You're raising up world shakers, nation changers, Supreme Court justices, doctors, businessmen, leaders in the community. People that aren't just going to graduate from the Air Force Academy just to fly planes. But are going to commit their lives, whether they stay in the service or out of the service, to leading the service. Because we can't, we make no small dreams. We, we have dreamed too small for too long. And the great commission we've taken is this, if I can go on a trip... Every year or every other year, then I'm fulfilling my duty. I'm, that's religion, people. That's religion. If you go on missions just to, just to check it off, you're a Pharisee. You're a Sadducee. That's just religion. But if you go on missions because it's inside of you and your overall goal is to be well-rounded so that you can sit in the United Nations someday. You know that, that there's a committee on the United Nations that just happened this week. They passed a law that made it illegal to criticize Islam. Who are those people? I didn't go to high school with any of them. Who are those people that are voting on that and changing and affecting, affecting our lives? We don't have to criticize Islam. I'm not going to criticize Islam. I'm not. But if anybody does now, they could get in serious trouble. Global issue. In Canada, pastors are now in prison for knocking homosexuality. That's our neighbor. 
You guys know what's happening in Mexico. Listen, Mexico, we're deciding this week whether we send any short-term teams to Mexico because, because of the problems that are there. Who's going to change that? Somebody who goes to church three out of four Sundays? No. They're not going to change that. You know who's going to change that? Presidents, Secretary of State, people who are, people who are in charge of the border control. You know the border control? They just found, they just found a U.S. Marshal in, on the Juarez side of El Paso, shot in the back of the head. He had been a U.S. Marshal for 17 years, and before that he had been in, in the state patrol in Texas. But now he's been shot in the head in Juarez, and you know what they're, you know what they're determining? He, he, had, he had been brought up a couple of times on, on thoughts that he was, he was a little bit corrupt. That in this, in this drug and guns trade that's happening in our southern border, that, that one, of the, one of the marshals that had been there 17 years, it was, it was thought that he might, he might be working for the bad guys. Anderson Cooper just, just uh, interviewed one of the guys that's, that's in part of the drug cartel in Mexico. He was wearing a ski mask to hide his identity. And then he said, he, Anderson's asking him all these questions. How does this happen? How does that happen? How do you get, how do you get these drugs across the border? He said, he said, well, for instance, one time we just made contact with one of the border uh, patrols and offered this guy $50,000. And so we got one of our loads across of marijuana. Who's going to lead the border control? In 20 years? Who's going to lead the border control in 40 years? Who's going to do it? Because we think about if we just go and do a drama, then we're fulfilling a religious obligation. You know that a fact I heard this week that, that the whole entire population of Mexico has been saved nine times according to statistics. Nine times. How effective are we at discipling nations? I think we've been playing pirate for a little bit too long. We've heard the sound of a cannonball searching so that our bodies could come up to the top of the river and that we could fade to black being a hero. We've romanticized missions a little bit too much. And now a USA Today report tells us that if we simply sit down with our friends, our families, and our neighbors... We will bring people to reconciliation with our Lord and Savior. Dream no small dreams. For too long, all of us have been willing to die for Christ. And my question to you today is, are you willing to live for Christ? Are you willing to take the mundane out of your life to push in a little bit deeper in your studies, to dig in and hold on a little bit stronger in your job and in your career path, and to spend more time praying than you spend getting dressed. And when you hear the whisper of Christ telling you what to do, my question is not will you die for Him, but will you live for him? Majesty. Majesty.
Your grace has found me just as I am. Empty-handed but alive in your hand. Heavenly Father, we come before you today, God. Jesus, we ask that you would light the fire again. God, that you would tilt our perceptions of Christianity, of missions, of reconciling the the world to yourself, God. That you would jumble that up, God, and give us a clear picture of really, truly what we're supposed to be. What college and 20-somethings are supposed to grow up and be in this modern age, God. That if, if some are to be missionaries, then, God, then breathe into them an, a, enough of your Holy Spirit to go be missionaries. But if some are called to be doctors, physicians, businesswomen, businessmen, educators, society changers, God if they're supposed to just run for city council, if they're supposed to run for, for Congress, for Senate, for even President, God, draw us close enough to you so that we can hold on to you for the ride. Give us a 60-year plan, Jesus. Allow us to stop dreaming small dreams. Stop living small, distracted ambitions that we truly may pick up our cross, and follow you and prove ourselves worthy of being called disciples of Jesus. We commit to you again. God, we go out knowing that you love us, that your grace is there for us, that your mercy is showered upon us. Give us strength to walk and to live in this day. In Jesus' name, amen.